We'll be in Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel 22. But I'd like you first to go to Galatians chapter 5. So maybe put a bookmark or a finger in Ezekiel 22. And then scooch on over to Galatians 5. I don't know if you've ever scooched in Bible study before. The opportunity to do that now. The more you know, sometimes the heavier it can get. You know, there there is truly bliss in ignorance. And when you don't know things, sometimes you can be a little more frivolous in your life, but the more you know, the more you understand, the more weight of responsibility comes with that. And I was realizing after the study that we're going to do in a few moments, but that I've been doing this last week, I set it down yesterday and I said, Lord, this is, this is heavy. This is very heavy stuff. And uh, I'm not really sure where to go with this. And so I slept on it last night when I woke up this morning. I believe God showed me, gave me an answer. And I want to share this with you. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19. It says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The contrast between spiritual and fleshly living is significant. As Paul points out so clearly, two lists of two completely different ways of living in the world, by the flesh or by the Spirit. But there is a subtlety to the fruit of the Spirit that I've only recently begun to understand. And I want you to think through this with me. Love is not passion. It is an unwavering decision grounded in the truth. Joy is not frivolity. It's a deep, abiding, inner rejoicing specifically promised to those who abide in Christ. Peace is not ease. It can come in the most tumultuous of times and it defies the human condition. Patience is not lenience. Patience is forbearance under provocation, but it does not turn a blind eye to immorality. Kindness is not politeness. It is godly care and concern in action. Goodness is not philanthropy. It is the integrity of God. Faithfulness is not immediate. It is trustworthiness proven over time. 
Gentleness is not timidity. In fact, it marks one in whom the word is fully implanted, James 1.21 tells us. And because of this, is some, someone who is compassionate with discipline. That's, that's gentleness. And self-control is not innate. It comes only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of the living God. All of this to say the fruit of the Spirit is the life of Christ lived out in the Christian by the power of the Spirit of Christ. That's the fruit of the Spirit. It is proof of a heart that has become overrun by Jesus. It's my greatest desire to bear that fruit. Now you may wonder, okay, why the side trip into the orchard of Galatians chapter 5? Well, as I said, we have a hard teaching tonight. We come to the end of a long run of prophetic judgments given by God to the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 1 through 24. The first 24 chapters of this book we come to the final conclusion of tonight. Judgments along the way, all that come as a result of the deeds of the flesh lived out by the people in Judah. And so again... We will highlight tonight the deeds of the flesh. And as we do so, we will, I think, recognize them so hard at work in our society today. We've done this a lot. Have you noticed that? In Jeremiah and Ezekiel both, it seems like Wednesday after Wednesday after Wednesday and some Sundays thrown in there too, we walk out of here going, that ain't Judah, that's America. And there have been times in studying this where I've said, Lord, I don't want to chastise my country tonight. I don't want to talk down about about the nation anymore. I don't want to point out these things. And God says, I'm pointing out these things. And so I back off and say, okay, Lord. But you're going to see this even as we look at it tonight. And because it's so heavy and because the focus continues to be on judgment and these final prophetic judgments, which get heavier as we get closer to the end, we need to understand that if we view this in the flesh, tonight's teaching could be a real downer walk out of here really bummed. This kind of teaching will douse passion, it will ruin frivolity, and it will ravage ease. But if received by the Spirit, it will reveal true love. I think it will sustain joy, and it will come along with peace as it reveals for us the sorrow of God without marring the fruit of the Spirit, which is intrinsic to His nature. So we come at this from a spiritual perspective, and that's what I'm inviting you to do tonight, to see this with God's eyes, to see it with His love, with His joy, with His peace, with His patience, with His kindness, with His goodness, with His faithfulness, with His gentleness, with His self-control. Did I forget one? No. Okay. Go back and listen later, see if we did. We view it with these things and from that perspective, from the nature of God, so that we can understand His heart as we go through these final judgments, the last series of prophetic judgments. This last series actually began around chapter 20 and has run through, or will run through chapter 24. It began in 591 B.C. Three years later, these prophecies become history. In fact, look at Ezekiel 24, verse 1. Ezekiel 24, verse 1, the place we will end up in a bit tonight. 
which reads, The word of the Lord came to me in the ninth year, in the tenth month, on the tenth of the month. That's January 15th, 588 B.C. Saying, Son of man, write the name of the day. This very day, the king of Babylon has laid siege to Jerusalem this very day. And that's what we come up to. Three years ago, chapter 20, prophecies began. The final prophetic judgments. And now, according to Ezekiel 24, verses 1 and 2, January 15th, 588 B.C., the day of the siege of Jerusalem, and all the prophetic warnings, all the prophetic judgments are over. Now it's happening. Now they come to fruition. But we begin back in chapter 22. I'm going to give you a five-point outline to follow through tonight as we walk through and understand where all this leads. And we begin with, number one, the forgotten law. The forgotten law. Ezekiel 22, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Then cause her to know all her abominations. God is asking with kind of a Hebrew slant to it, he is asking Ezekiel to judge the bloody city. When he says, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? It's, it's, it's a, almost like a rhetorical question. Would you do this for me? I'm asking you to step in and do this. Then cause her to know all her abominations. Verse 3, you shall say, thus says the Lord God, a city shedding blood in her midst, so that her time will come, and that makes idols contrary to her interest for defilement. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and defiled by your idols which you have made. Thus you have brought your day near and have come to your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mocking to all the lands. Those who are near and those who are far from you will mock you, you of ill repute, full of turmoil." Behold, the rulers of Israel, each according to his power, have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. They have treated father and mother lightly within you. The alien they have oppressed in your midst, the fatherless and the widow they have wronged in you. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. Slanderous men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. And in you they have eaten at the mountain shrines. In your midst they have committed acts of lewdness. In you they have uncovered their father's nakedness. In you they have humbled her who was unclean in her menstrual impurity. One has committed abomination with his neighbor's wife. And another has lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in you has humbled his sister, his father's daughter. In you they have taken bribes to shed blood. You have taken interest and profits and you have injured your neighbors for gain by oppression and you have forgotten me, declares the Lord God. Behold then, I smite my hand at your dishonest gain which you have acquired and at the bloodshed which is among you. We have a laundry list here of the societal sins of Judah. Of all that was going on that that pushes down to the nearness of their judgment. Many of these are direct violations of the very heart of the Ten Commandments. And again, it's hard to read through these without making comparisons to our own society, our own culture. See if any of these sound familiar to you. Back in verse 7, he says they treated father and mother lightly. In other words, parenting is discounted. 
And I see that in our culture. Parenting is discounted. The will of the parent set aside for the will of the school or the government. When a child can get birth control without the parent's consent, when a child can have an abortion without the parent's knowing, well, then mother and father have been treated lightly. Parenting has been discounted. He says also in verse 7, the alien they have oppressed, we've talked about this recently, foreigners were being devalued. Do we do such a thing in our culture, in our country, as the debate rages on about immigration? I'll tell you what, wherever you stand on the political aisle, we need to not be those who devalue even illegal immigrants. They are people, as we are people. The fatherless and the widow, verse 7 says, are wronged, so orphans and widows are denied. As the uh, statistic was given just Sunday or perhaps a week before, that roughly eight kids a month on Whidbey Island alone have no home to go to, need foster care. That's just on this little island. Verse 8 goes on and says, They profaned my Sabbaths. What does that mean? It means rest in the Lord was declined. No thank you, Lord. We're just fine. We'll keep going. The things that matter most to God. He says in verse 8, My holy things... These things are despised. Holy things. It's Ani Kodesh. It literally can be translated by sanctuary, except for the fact that it's the plural form of the word Kodesh. So it's literally my holies. Those things that are holy to me, that matter to me, the Lord says. What holy things are despised today? I'll give you just three obvious ones. The priority of worship. The priority of worship is despised whenever we come into church environments and church settings and we say, that's not my style. The priority of worship is despised when we say, I'm not really involved in that whole corporate thing. I'm just going to study my Bible at home. Hey, Bible study is great. Studying the Word is fantastic. But denying opportunity for corporate worship as well as personal worship God places a high priority on worship, whatever it looks like. Exodus 20, verse 3, He says, You shall have no other gods before Me. Yet what other things take precedence over worshiping God in our lives? You know, when the calendar gets a little busy, and so we begin to drop off. In our involvement in times of worship, we say, well, I can, I can show up late. I don't really have time to be there for the music part. Or I don't have time to be there midweek. I know, you're the choir, I'm preaching. <laughs> the priority of worship, the preeminence of His name is a holy thing despised today. Exodus 20, verse 7, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished him who takes His name in vain. And I, as pet peeve of Pastor Rick, isn't God's name despised with every text message that that contains OMG? Now, there there are those who think, Oh, you know, I mean, oh my gosh. That's what I mean when when I type that. Okay? That's not what it means. It's just a word, Rick. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. This is my God. What could be more holy than His name? Or any reference to Him. And to refer to God's name in any way, shape, or form lightly 
offhandedly. Even those of us who would from time to time say, God knows I'm tired today. Well, let's not be so light with the name. What could be more holy than His name? Well, I think one thing, actually. Psalm 138, verse 2 Thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Oh, Rick, that's the King James Version of it. It actually says in my New American Standard Bible, you have magnified your word uh, uh, alongside your name. The word can go either way. It's a participle there. Um, and it literally, the word above, going into all thy name, it can mean above, over, or upon. Any way you cut it, God's Word sits on the foundation of the holiness of His name. God's Word is substantial because God's name is substantial. God's Word is full of truth because God's name is full of truth. And God rests His Word on His name. He says that's how reliable it is. The priority of worship, the preeminence of His name, and the prize of His Word. Do you prize God's Word? Did cherish His Word. And yet, nowadays, it's not only being denied, it's being revised. I don't know if any of you, anyone else got the email I got from John today about the QJV, QJV translation as opposed to the King James Version. It's the Queen James Version. It came out December 12th of 2012. Um, and it is a a Bible that has been, quote, edited to prevent homophobic misinterpretation. The Queen James Version. It's a white Bible with a big cross in the colors of the rainbow on it. And it revises... It doesn't go back to original language. It just takes the 1769, I believe it is, King James translation, and it adds or subtracts to either lessen uh, anything that might be considered or might go the direction of being homophobic, it lessens that or changes it ever so slightly to make the homosexual or the LGBT community more comfortable. Do we prize His Word? Verse 9 says, and this is interesting, note the language, slanderous men have been in you for the purpose of shedding blood. The idea is reputation, assassination. Character defamation. What is the difference between an assassin and a slanderer? One murders the body, the other one murders the person. One takes away the life, the other one messes with or defaces or defames the life. David put slandering and murder in the same category. Psalm 140, verse 11, May a slanderer not be established in the earth. May evil hunt the violent man speedily. Because slanderous words stoke violent behavior. Slander is a precursor to violence. It is killing with words, which can be but a step away from killing with the sword. Verse 9 also refers to acts of lewdness. And then verses 10 and 11 go on to outline sexual deviance. Verse 12 defines greed with bribes and profiting to a neighbor's destruction. And so, just to review, parenting discounted, foreigners devalued, orphans and widows denied, rest in the Lord is declined, my holy things, God says, are despised, 
There's character defamation, sexual deviance, neighbor's destruction. And in the midst of all of this, there's a greater issue. And it is the very heart of the law, for the people had disregarded the Lord. Look at verse 12. It's heartbreaking to read, but at the very end of the verse he says, And you have forgotten me. You've forgotten me. Where am I in your culture? Where am I in your marketplace? Where am I in your government? Where am I in your schools? Where am I in your families? Where am I in your personal life? You have forgotten me. The greater issue here is not the forgotten law. The greater issue is the forgotten Lord. Psalm 63, I'm just going to read it to you, gives a different perspective, a different heart. Where David writes, O God, You are my God, I shall seek You earnestly. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh yearns for You in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen You in the sanctuary to see Your power and Your glory. Because Your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise You. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. That's the song of one who has not forgotten the Lord. The song of one who clings to the Lord. Who holds on and will not let go. And that's the heart of the problem. That's the heart of the Ten Commandments. It's not the keeping of law. It's the remembering of the Lord is that in doing these things, God makes it clear, you're going to remember me. You're going to think about me. I'm going to be in the center of your life. Remember the Lord, and you'll remember the law. Mm -hmm. See, what happened is the Jewish people got it backwards. They tried to just remember the law to the exclusion of the Lord. And what ultimately happens when you do that is you become legalistic, and then you slide right into sin, because the heart of the law is missing. The heart of the law is the Lord Himself. And the point of the law is to draw near to Him. As we talked about on Sunday, Jesus said, if you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. It's not about keeping lists and rules and religion. It's about walking so close with Me in a relationship that all that stuff is taken care of because you love Me. That's the deal. And ultimately, forgetting the Lord and His law always yields the same result. Number two, the flow of blood. The flow of blood. In this same section, across these 13 verses, God refers to bloodshed seven times. Back in chapter 2, He calls Jerusalem Damir. Damir, the bloody city, or the city of blood guiltiness. It's not the holy city, it's the bloody city. And He details three types of blood guilt among the people in these 13 verses. The first type is bloodshed for idolatry, verses 3, 4, and 9. Bloodshed for idolatry, pagan cutting to bleed on their altars, or child sacrifice, even more brutal. In verse 6, he refers to bloodshed for power. 
and we look across the study of the kings of Israel and Judah, and you see this political assassinations and intrigue of men and women trying to hold on to power. Bloodshed for idolatry, bloodshed for power, and then bloodshed for personal gain. Verses 9, 12, and 13 Show greed at its core when your own personal gain literally outweighs the life of another. And the Lord says, there is a flow of blood in my holy city. The city of Jerusalem is bloody from one end to the other. The nation of Judah, bloody from one end to the other. The flow of blood. But all this bloodshed is not a Jewish problem, it's a human problem. You remember, Israel is just but a picture of the rest of us, a microcosm of the entire world. As God chooses out this people and says, I'm going to deal personally with them that the world may understand me. A picture of the world. Bloodshed and violence. Bloodshed and violence depict a nation that has lost its moral compass. Do you recall the first mention of the word violence in the Scriptures? Anyone remember where that is? Genesis. It's in Genesis. That's a good guess. And it's not Cain and Abel. It's what? Genesis, six. Genesis chapter 6. The first time the word violence is mentioned, Genesis six eleven. the earth was corrupt in the sight of God. The earth was filled with violence. In Genesis six thirteen, God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them from the earth. You know what violence is? Violence is sin grown up. Violence is simply sin at its full maturity. Bloodshed is adult sin. Skip over to chapter 24. We're going to skip chapter 23. We'll come back to it. We'll come back and finish chapter 22. But I want you to look at the first half of chapter 24 because here is given a parable of the bloody city, the dumb ear, uh, Jerusalem, the city of blood. In verse 3 of chapter 24, it says, Speak a parable to the rebellious house and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Put on the pot, put it on, and also pour water in it. Put in it the pieces, every good piece, the thigh and the shoulder, and fill it with choice bones. Take the choicest of the flock and also pile wood under the pot. Make it boil vigorously, also seethe its bones in it. The idea here is Jerusalem is now in hot water. Jerusalem is the boiling pot. The people are the choice pieces dropped now into the pot, and the fire beneath the pot is the judgment of God. Remember when this parable comes, as we see in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24, this is the day the siege begins against Jerusalem. So here's Ezekiel. He's in the land of Babylon. He's there among the exiles. And God says, I want you to act out this parable before them. And He tells him to get the pot, fill it with the choice pieces, and have it boil and seethe with the fire beneath it. And this is taking place on the exact day that Nebuchadnezzar is seething and boiling as he sieges all around Jerusalem. Verse 6. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Woe to the bloody city, to the pot in which there is rust, and whose rust has not gone out of it. Take out of it piece after piece without making a choice. In other words, without chowing down. For her blood is in her midst. 
She placed it on the bare rock. She did not pour it on the ground to cover it with dust, which would have been an appropriate way to deal with blood. If you're draining out blood, you want to cover it up. Verse 8, that it may cause wrath to come up and take vengeance. I have put her blood on the bare rock that it may not be covered. The reason why Ezekiel couldn't eat these pieces of boiled meat was because the rusty scum inside the pot is now rising to the surface in this boiling water. So apparently this was a rusty pot. The word rust here, helah, is used five times in this parable. In verses 6, 11, and 12. And that word is only found here in the entire Bible. Chalah, meaning rust. Why? Because the rust depicts the blood. The pot is Jerusalem. The choice pieces are the people. The fire is the wrath of God. And the rust that now is coming to the surface is the blood. The bloodshed of the people. It spoils, it defiles the good and choice pieces of meat in the pot. Did you hear about this? A fatberg was discovered in London. I'm not kidding. They're calling it a fatberg. It was a huge ball of congealed fat found in the city sewers rotting underneath London. Let me tell you about this. 15 tons of gelatinous fat and baby wipes. The Thames Water Utility Company said it was enough wrongly flushed, festering food fat mixed with wet wipes to fill a double-decker bus. A fatberg. It's enough to take down the Titanic. Big, there's a picture of this nasty, big old ball of goo. And the occasional baby wipe and other stuff. I don't even know what... What's in there? And they're trying to clean it out. You know, they're shoveling that stuff out of the sewers of London right now. Rick, why do you mention that? First of all, because it's just gross. Yeah, and I'm a man, and I see stuff like that and go, I got to share. Did you hear about the fatberg? But you know what? What a picture of sin. Sin is like a fatberg that builds up in the sewers of our lives. We don't even see it. We don't even know it's there. We think we can just exit out of a web page and throw it away. We think we can delete a slanderous text and it's gone. We think we can hide the issue and shove it aside, and yet it's building up and building up and congealing and getting bigger and grosser and more disgusting. The people of Israel must have thought over all the years of bloodshed, that can't be remembered. That was of the past. Well, that was great uncle so-and-so who killed great aunt whoever it was. That was, you know, someone over there, or that wasn't something that was known. Or yeah, it was a slanderous word, but nobody died because of it. And so they tried to cover it up, or they thought it was gone. They didn't think it was there, but like this fatberg in London, it was building up, but it was rust. It was blood. God hears the blood cry out. Remember, He heard the blood of Abel cry out from the ground. And it sticks the rust. And the Lord here compares Judah's blood guilt to rust in a boiling pot. And the scalding water now in and on the boiling pot. It's the only way to clean out this rusty scum of Jerusalem. Verse 9, therefore, thus says the Lord God, woe to the bloody city. I will also make the pile great. Heap on the wood, 
Kindle the fire. Boil the flesh well. Mix in the spices and let the bones be burned. By the way, one of the ways that they used to build fires in the Middle East and in ancient times was they would use bones as kindling. So the implication where he says, uh, adds on there, let the bones be burned, as he's talking about bones, literally, Ezekiel's supposed to come up with some bones, apparently, and stick it in with the wood of the fire underneath the pot. And all of this is a graphic portrayal of what's happening now in Jerusalem as the bones of the people are being burned, as the choice pieces, my chosen ones, the Lord would say, are being boiled to the bone are being killed, are being ravished, are being famished in the siege taking place in Jerusalem. And then set it empty on its coals, that is the pot, so that it may be hot, and its bronze may glow, and its filthiness may be melted in it, its rust consumed. She has wearied me with toil. Yet her great rust has not gone from her. Let her rust be in the fire. In your filthiness is lewdness, because I would have cleansed you, yet you were not clean. You will not be cleansed from your filthiness again until I have spent my wrath on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. It is coming, and I will act. I will not relent. I will not pity. I will not be sorry. According to your ways and according to your deeds, I will judge you, declares the Lord God. Back to chapter 22. From the forgotten law to the flow of blood, we come to now number three, the fire of judgment. Picking up in verse 14, chapter 22, can your heart endure or can your hands be strong in the days that I will deal with you? The Lord, I the Lord have spoken and will act. I will scatter you among the nations I will disperse you through the lands and I will consume your uncleanness from you. And it's been going on now for 2,000 years. 2,500 years. You will profane yourself in the sight of the nations and you will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord. One again of 24 times God says that through Ezekiel. You will know that I am the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. All of them are bronze and tin and iron and lead in the furnace. They are the dross of silver. The dross of silver. So he goes from rust in chapter 24, back here in chapter 22, he says they're like dross to him. Therefore, verse 19, thus says the Lord God, because all of you have become dross, Therefore, behold, I am going to gather you into the midst of Jerusalem as they gather silver and bronze and iron and lead and tin into the furnace to blow fire on it in order to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my wrath and I will lay you there and melt you. I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath and you will be melted in the midst of it. As silver is melted in the furnace, so you will be melted in the midst of it, and you will know that I, the Lord, have poured out my wrath on you. So again, like rust depicting blood, the dross here depicts impurity. The impurity of the people. And it can only be filtered out by the fires of the smelter. But even these fires have not been working. 
God has been trying to purify His people, trying to cleanse His people, but the fire, the cleansing, has not been working. It wasn't working in Judah then. It's not working in America right now. God would purify this country, I believe, but we won't let Him. Jeremiah said as much about the Jewish people. Jeremiah 6, verse 29, The bellows blow fiercely. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on, but the wicked are not separated. They call them rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. Now, pause a moment and personalize that. When the fires of refinement come into your life, when it gets a little heated, when stuff gets a little hard or a little tough, how do you respond? Are you willing to accept the heat of refinement? Am I willing to allow my sin and my dross to be separated out? Or do I try to hang on to those aspects of my life? The process of sanctification, you know this, it can get hot. Life can get difficult and oftentimes God will use our difficulties, our persecutions, our trials, our struggles. He will use to separate out from us the impure things, the unnecessary things in our lives so that we might be pure before Him. But while obedience to the law is compared here to pure silver, there's something greater, even more precious. And that's the gold of faith. Peter says in 1 Peter 1.6, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible. There's the joy of the Spirit. Joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And so we have the sanctification here of gold, which is faith. Better than the purification of silver, which speaks of obedience to the law. Your faith is gold, and God would refine that. And by the way, there is a better process, I believe, of sanctification than burning judgment. Sometimes the fires must come. But better than the fires of persecution or of hardship, as we talked about last week, is the sanctification that comes from doing what you're doing right now. The washing of the Word. The sanctification that comes by the truth of the Word of God. Jesus said, John 17, 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now I'm not saying that if you show up for Wednesday night Bible study that you're less likely to have struggles in the world. Although if you want to believe that and it helps your attendance, that's fine. (laughs) But you know, I really believe God's desire for us is to sanctify and purify our lives. And the more we're in the word, the more that's going to happen. And the less necessary will be the painful fires of judging out those impurities. And, you know, one of the things I said earlier, that there's a, there's a heaviness of responsibility that comes with knowing the truth. And the more you study the Bible, and the more you see these things, the more aware of them you are. The more aware of your own personal impurities. And you want to get rid of that stuff. 
We'll see more about that in just a moment. When we come to the underlying reason for the fires in Judah, the fires of judgment, number four in our outline, the failure of the teachers. The failure of the teachers. Verse 23, The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion tearing the prey. Oh, that's interesting. Satan is like a roaring lion, isn't he? They have devoured lives. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They have made no distinction between the holy and the profane. They have not taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they hide their eyes from my Sabbaths and I am profaned among them. James says in James 3 verse 1, Let not many become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And in my personal opinion, the greatest judgment to fall on this generation of pastors will be the lack of teaching. A judgment for the lack of teaching in the church, which is leading to exactly what he says here, little or no distinction between the holy and the profane. Why is it that churches are openly embracing profane things today? Because the distinction is not clear anymore. What was clearly sin in the past is now embraced as something, a a different lifestyle. And I'm not just talking about sexual perversion. There are other things that we embrace as Christians that clearly the Bible teaches against, but we say, eh, it's okay. Well, why would we say that? Because we're not taught any different. Because we want to make assumptions as human beings that it's all okay. Where are the pastors teaching the difference between the unclean and the clean. Between the holy things of God and the unholy things of men. If we would but teach the Word, we don't even have to be intelligent about it. We don't have to be... I mean, I'll even say this. We don't even have to be super studied if we would just sit down and read through the Word together and talk about it. But this generation is lacking teachers of the Word. And if we would do so, these things would all become clear. But here we see this, and it's interesting to me, the prophets and the priests fail to teach. And guess what happens? The princes and the people follow. They come next. Just as Jesus said in Luke 6.40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone, after he has been fully trained, will be like his teacher. Who's our teacher? It's not me. Don't look at me. It's Jesus. And we want to become like our teacher, like our rabbi, like our Lord Jesus. How do we do that? We listen to His teaching. We pay attention to His Word. But verse 27 says, Now her princes within her are like wolves tearing the prey by shedding blood and destroying lives in order to get dishonest gain. Well, why are the princes doing that? Well, apparently the prophets and the priests are not teaching well. So they're not learning it. Back in verse 28, her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. And the people of the land have practiced oppression and committed robbery, and they have wronged the poor and the needy and have oppressed the sojourner without justice. 
God says, I search for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Thus I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their way I have brought upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Do you see that pattern? The problem doesn't begin with the princes or the people. It begins with the prophets and the priests who are not teaching the word. If the prophets and the priests would teach, the princes and the people would follow suit. In other words, the responsibility for the situation of this nation does not begin with our president. It begins with our pastors. That's where the judgment is. But why does he do the things he... And you can say it about any recent president. Why does he do the things that he does? Well, who was his pastor? Where did he get his teaching? He's just doing what he was taught to do. You know, I think God rejects tenure. If you're a teacher, forgive me, but I think God rejects tenure. If a teacher can't teach, fire the teacher. Get them out. Get someone in there who has a passion for, a desire to teach. This is now the second time the Lord brings this indictment through Ezekiel where He says, I search for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so I would not destroy it, but I found no one. Back in Ezekiel 13, verse 5, He says, You have not gone up into the breaches, nor did you build the wall around the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. Remember, gang, that wall is not just a stone around Jerusalem. The wall he's talking about is the last line of biblical defense against moral collapse. It is the teaching of the Word. It is those who will stand and proclaim the truth of God's Word. Amen. Who will build up the wall? Who will stand in the gap? In our homes, will you teach the Word? In our marriages, will you share the Word? To our children, will you teach the Word? For Jerusalem, it was too late. The walls are about to come down. An hour is also coming when the punishment phase will begin on planet Earth as well. You feeling the weight of this yet? 